1: Hi, I'm Kyle Wood, host of Art Smart and Who Arted. Right now, I'm asking you to help support this show by filling out the network survey at surveymonkey.com r airwave. The network is conducting this listener survey to help us improve our shows and find sponsors that you might actually be interested in. As an added bonus, if you take a few minutes to fill out the survey, you'll be entered to win a $500 Amazon gift card as R-Wave saying thank you. So please help us out and go to surveymonkey.com slash r slash airwave. feel like who art ed? We'll to it. Who art ed? <laughs> <it>? Mr. Wood <laughs> art ed <F>. me. <laughs> Either way, it, it's important. It. it works art. Art. I know. That's a great start. Welcome to Who Arted, where we explore visual arts in an audio medium. I'm your host, Kyle Wood. Now, for this week's episode, I'm doing something a little bit different. Normally, I like to focus on art history, one artist, and one story at a time, But since we're getting near the end of our annual Arts Madness Tournament, we're in just the final four, I thought it'd be fun to do an episode that gives an overview, a little mashup of all four of our finalists. Just a reminder, as in every week of the tournament, you can vote for your favorites at whoartedpodcast.com slash vote. Now, in our first matchup, we've got Gustav Eiffel up against Vincent Van Gogh. So we're going to start with a little background on Eiffel and the Eiffel Tower. In the late 19th century, a World's Fair was a really big deal. In a time when most people lived their entire lives within a 20-mile radius of where they were born, the fairs were a rare opportunity for people to experience the best of various cultures through grand exhibitions. In 1889, the city of Paris created a display that would become a cultural landmark for generations to come. The idea was to create a building 300 meters tall. For listeners in the United States, a meter is a unit of measure in a much simpler and more logical base 10 metric system that pretty much everyone else in the world is using. 300 meters is just a bit more than 300 yards or about a thousand feet. The Eiffel Tower was by far the largest structure built at that time. The previous record holder was the Washington Monument in the U.S., standing at about 555 feet or 169 meters tall. Gustav Eiffel was an entrepreneur, and he had two engineers working with him to plan the Iron Tower, but not everyone was on board with the design. Audiences today may be surprised to hear that many Parisians thought the design was an eyesore and a blight on their beautiful city. The architect, Stephen Savastre was commissioned to work on the design and make it less ugly. He drafted arches, glass-walled halls on every level, stonework around the base, and other ornamental details throughout the structure. Ultimately, they stripped it down to a more utilitarian structure, but they kept his idea of arches at the base. The form of the tower was largely determined by the engineer's calculations to cut down on wind resistance. The primary resistance, though, came from writers and artists who criticized the tower throughout its construction. I think my favorite description came from Francois Copier, who called it... Quote, "this mast of iron gymnasium apparatus incomplete confused and deformed of course this criticism faded as the world's fair began and the tower was a huge hit over 2 million visitors came to marvel at it while it did prove successful the eiffel tower was not intended to be a permanent fixture in the city it was built to wow visitors in the fair and then to be torn down later" Eiffel only had a permit to have the structure stand for 20 years. The idea that the tower would be temporary provided an interesting opportunity for another sort of creative visionary. A truly remarkable con artist named Victor Lustig sold the tower for scrap two times. While truly awful, I must admit his plan was quite clever. He posed as an official with the French government, but instead of claiming a high-status post, he pretended to be a mid-level government official. He met with heads of various scrap iron companies, telling them that because of the sensitive nature of such a high-profile project, he was trying to meet with people discreetly to get bids for the roughly 7,300 tons of iron used to build the tower. He then met privately with the least successful of the bidders and tried to appear empathetic. He tells the guy, look, I know you're up and coming. It's hard to compete with bigger companies. I feel for you. I'm just a mid-level government employee. I'm struggling too. Maybe we can help each other out. He actually got the guy to bribe him for the contract for all that scrap iron, which did a few things. It made him seem a little more credible to the guy he was conning. But more importantly for Lustig, it made his mark less likely to report the crime, as doing so would not only be embarrassing, but it would also implicate him for the bribery. Lustig got the money and then fled to Austria, where he watched the papers to see if there were any reports of the crime. And he was right. The businessman was too embarrassed to report it. In the ultimate show of hubris, Lustig returned to Paris and attempted to repeat the exact same scam. The second time around, though, he was not so successful and ended up having to flee the country yet again. He went on to carry out numerous other audacious crimes before he was arrested and sent to the notorious Alcatraz prison in the United States. The tower was never sold for scrap of course. It stands today as one of the most recognizable symbols of the city of Paris. Just to wrap things up, here are a few extra fun facts about the tower. It's a few meters taller today than it was when it was built in 1889 due to antennae that have been added to the top. Because heat makes metal expand, the Eiffel Tower stands a bit taller in the summer. It even bends slightly away from the sun as the iron on the sunny side will expand a few inches more than the iron on the shady side. And finally, to prevent all of that iron from rusting, the entire tower needs to be repainted every seven years. Now, the Eiffel Tower may loom large in Paris, but it is up against Vincent van Gogh and the Starry Night, One of the most famous and beloved paintings in the world. And Vincent van Gogh had an interesting and winding path to success. There are, of course, those stories often repeated that he never sold anything during his lifetime, or he sold only one painting during his lifetime. And while he was not a giant commercial success in his lifetime, he did find some success. I did a mini episode on that. I've actually done a couple of episodes on Van Gogh, and so I'll link those other episodes in the show notes. But today, I'm just going to give the quick recap. Van Gogh came from an artistic family. His brother, Theo, was his art dealer, but early on, Vincent had actually been an art dealer himself and quite successful at it. But he left his work as an art dealer because he loved art really passionately, but he was disillusioned with the commercial aspects of it. For a while, he studied to be a priest. He did some missionary work. But ultimately, he just felt compelled to create art. After quite a bit of study in the Netherlands, he had been making paintings of the peasants, the potato eaters being the first masterpiece of that early era, He was urged to go to Paris and check out what the Impressionists were doing, and specifically to brighten up his color scheme. Now, while he was in France, Van Gogh was inspired and he did brighten up that color scheme. One of the things I think a lot of people forget about this era is the industrial revolution brought about changes in all sorts of fields, including painting. This is the time period where synthetic pigments came to be available. The tube of paint was a 19th century invention. And so Vincent van Gogh was one of those artists who was very quick to adopt the use of all sorts of different new pigments and colors that had been developed and we're now readily available. Some of that had a wonderful effect brightening up his paintings, but some of those pieces have sort of changed over time. The sunflower paintings specifically, I think have, I don't know, the chemical reaction, uh, maybe check out the Lux Psy podcast. I'm sure Dr. Lex could explain it better. But my understanding is a lot of the sunflowers have sort of browned a little bit over time. They probably used to be a little bit brighter yellow because of the compounds that were in some of those paints. Now, on the topic of yellows, Vincent van Gogh loved his little yellow house that he rented in Arles, France. He had hoped to start an artist commune there, but almost immediately after Paul Gauguin arrived, things went off the rails. The two of them... Painted together for some time, but they also fought quite a bit. After Paul Gauguin left abruptly, Vincent van Gogh suffered a horrible, devastating episode. In his writings, he said he didn't really recall exactly what happened, but what we do know from the historical records is that Vincent van Gogh saw Gauguin leaving as. Not only the loss of a friend, but the loss of the opportunity to live out his dream of creating an artist commune in Arles. He also severed his ear and nearly died from that incident. Obviously, he needed some medical help. The original plan was for Vincent Van Gogh to go to a public hospital in the city with around a thousand other patients. Instead, his brother Theo paid for Vincent to stay in a small asylum in St. Remy with only about 40 other patients. 19th century care for mental illness was far from ideal. Psychiatry was in its infancy, but Vincent van Gogh was in about as good a progressive hospital as one could find. The doctors encouraged patients to walk around the gardens that had been planted on the grounds because the institution's founder had believed that communing with nature would be good for the body and the mind. The treatment seemed to be good for Vincent. He was removed from his vices and given structure and routines. He was also given three meals a day and... You know, to understand the significance of that, you need to realize that when left to his own devices, Vincent van Gogh had been known to go without meals because he spent all his money on paint rather than food. While everybody knows the story of the ear, Vincent van Gogh's body was in such poor physical condition. He didn't just lose his ear, he lost about a dozen teeth. The time at the hospital, though, He was cared for physically, mentally, emotionally, seems to have done wonders for the artist. He was extremely productive, making around 150 paintings over the year that he spent at the hospital in Saint-Rémy. The most famous of those paintings is The Starry Night. I think one of the things that makes The Starry Night so brilliant and so significant is it helps to mark that shift from paintings based on observation to paintings based on emotion. The night landscape is a mix of observation and imagination. From the obviously invented swirling movement of brushstrokes across the sky, Vincent van Gogh created this composition based on what he wanted more than what he actually saw. The little town nestled in the hills was not visible from Vincent's window. The cypress was small in the distance, but in this work, Vincent played with the elements to arrange these pieces in an artwork that just works. The vivid color schemes, the rich textures, the heavy impasto, the distribution of elements in such a wonderful balance, and the lines that guide the eye around the composition Make this a piece that compels viewers to stop and take notice. Now, after the break, I'm going to share a bit about the other two in our final four.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe.
1: The other matchup this week is between Leonardo da Vinci and Frank Lloyd Wright. I was absolutely shocked watching the results pour in this week. On Tuesday's episode of Art Ed Radio, the podcast for art teachers put out by the Art of Ed University, Tim Bogatz was doing a mailbag episode and he mentioned me. He gave a quick shout out to Who Arted as well as the tournament. And he mentioned that he was the guest on my Frank Lloyd Wright episode. I noticed throughout the week, Frank Lloyd Wright made a huge come from behind. It was up against Katsushika Hokusai's great wave off Kanagawa. And Hokusai came out to an early lead, but by Friday, that gap was eliminated entirely. The vote totals kept going up, but every time I checked throughout Friday and Saturday, it was a single vote margin. The closest I have ever had in the history of this tournament. But Frank Lloyd Wright came out on top. So here's a little bit about Frank Lloyd Wright and Falling Water. Frank Lloyd Wright is probably one of the most famous American architects. He is associated with the prairie style and architecture in the Midwest specifically. Unsurprisingly, he came from the Midwest. He was born June 8th, 1867 in Wisconsin. His father and mother traveled around a bit. Um, His father was a preacher, so he was preaching and playing music in those early years. They traveled around for the first decade or so of Frank Lloyd Wright's life, but they settled in Madison, Wisconsin in 1878. In 1885, his parents actually divorced, which was relatively rare for the time. Because they were strained financially, Frank Lloyd Wright worked his way through college. He studied engineering and worked for the dean of the University of Wisconsin. 1887, he left Madison for Chicago, where he went to work for Adler and Sullivan. He actually worked directly under Louis Sullivan for six years. When Wright got married in 1889, he wanted to build his first home in Oak Park, a beautiful suburb just outside the city proper. He negotiated with Sullivan, who loaned him the money, with the agreement that he would have to work for him for five years. Unfortunately, things turned south, and Sullivan actually fired Frank Lloyd Wright in 1893. There are disputes as to why. Some say it was because Wright was working too much on his own commissions and side projects. Others say that Louis Sullivan was jealous of Wright's talent. It was a nasty breakup, but after this, Frank Lloyd Wright opened up his own firm and developed the Prairie style. While they did have kind of an ugly breakup professionally, Frank Lloyd Wright did always look up to Louis Sullivan. When Louis Sullivan died, completely broke. Frank Lloyd Wright actually stepped in, he and some other architects paid for a stone to be inscribed with the immortal words that form must ever follow function as a nice tribute to his former mentor. Now, I think something to understand about Frank Lloyd Wright and his vision was he was trying to create a distinctly American style of architecture. A lot of the work previous to that had largely been, let's face it, kind of knockoffs of European styles and trends. Frank Lloyd Wright looked to the nature surrounding him for inspiration. He emphasized the horizontal planes, relatively simple geometric shapes, but there was an elegance to it. He focused a lot on openness, natural materials, letting the sunlight in, all of that stuff that makes a place feel like it's not just placed into the landscape, but a part of the landscape. I think that unity between the natural environment and the constructed environment was Frank Lloyd Wright's biggest innovation and his lasting legacy on generations of architects to come. His most famous building is called Falling Water. It started off as basically like a summer home or a weekend retreat for the Kaufman family. It's since been turned over to the West Pennsylvania Conservancy, and it has been a museum open to the public since 1964. The Kaufman family loved nature, and Wright came up with this design of cantilevered terraces anchored into the natural stone of the mountain, and he used those stone elements throughout the construction, not just on the exterior, but also on the interior of the building. There's a lot of glass throughout to make the space feel light and open and allow people inside to look out at the nature surrounding them but he also brought the natural elements inside through stone flooring and wood trim and all of that sort of stuff that, again, makes this a house that is not on the hill or on anything. It is of the hill. The hill and house happier for each other. Now, Frank Lloyd Wright and Falling Water may be considered the pinnacle of American architecture, but he's up against one of the greatest and most brilliant artists in the history of the world. Leonardo da Vinci and his painting of the Mona Lisa have captured people's imaginations for hundreds of years. Now, the Mona Lisa is famous for a couple of reasons. There was the famous theft in the early 20th century, that enigmatic smile, but also the way that she seems To not only sit there on the wall for us to look at, she seems to be an active participant in the room looking out at us. That phenomenon, which is kind of creepy, the idea that a painting is staring out at us with eyes that follow us around the room, that is so closely associated with Leonardo's painting, it's referred to as the Mona Lisa effect technically some scientists say that the Mona Lisa does not demonstrate the Mona Lisa effect because she's looking out at a slight angle. Still, there's a broad consensus that the Mona Lisa effect is a real phenomenon. So why do some paintings appear to be looking out with eyes that follow us around the room? For one, when we look at a face that's fixed in three dimensions, the light and shadows appear to shift as we move to look at it from different angles. In a two-dimensional image, however, the light and shadows do not shift as we move. Consequently, the face that's looking straight out from the picture appears to maintain the same relative position gazing out at us. I personally argue that the spotlight effect also has something to do with it. People have a tendency to overestimate how much others notice about them. People tend to think they are a larger focus of other people's attention and perhaps on some level, this self-involvement leads us to believe that even pictures on the wall are watching and judging us. Of course, the eyes aren't the only odd and enigmatic feature on Mona Lisa's face. Most of my young students are quick to point out the unsettling appearance created by her lack of eyebrows, but it seems she may have originally had eyebrows and eyelashes. Those features appear to have been obliterated by old restoration efforts. The feature that really captivates so many, though, is the slightly coy smile. I think one of the most interesting bits is how minimally defined the smile appears to be. Leonardo was spending his days working in the studio and his nights examining cadavers to peel back the layers and understand the muscular structure behind facial expressions. His notebooks include many detailed anatomical drawings and yet in this painting the smile is subtle and does not seem to engage the cheek muscles or the eyes. The expression actually seems different if you look at individual parts of her face. Researchers have found that people looking at the left half of her smile perceive it to be happy, while they do not detect joy in the right half. Similarly, the expression has been said to change depending on where you're focusing your attention, whether you're looking sort of at her eyes or at her mouth directly. The asymmetry of the smile has led researchers at the University of Cincinnati to say it was not a genuine smile. In other words, Mona Lisa was not truly happy but forcing a smile for the sake of a good picture. Another contributing factor to the ambiguity and the shift in perception is the sfumato technique that Leonardo was using. Sfumato is basically smudging the edges. Uh, the soft edges of the shadows create some ambiguity that's perceived differently based on whether you're looking in your central or peripheral vision. When we focus on her eyes, the smile is in our peripheral vision which tends to run the shadows from the mouth up into the cheeks and gives the sense of a bigger smile. As we look down and get the mouth into our sharper central field of vision, the smile seems to fade. While her stare and coy smile are known around the world today, the Mona Lisa was not always the most famous painting in the world. It appears to have been special to Leonardo. It's one of the few pieces he held onto until he passed away in 1519. He began the work around 1503, and some say he was even working on it, adding finishing touches as late as 1517. Still, while it appears to have been personally significant to Leonardo, Some say because the portrait was actually a self-portrait of the Renaissance man in drag. I stick with the conventional wisdom saying that it was a commissioned portrait of another woman. Now, regardless of who the actual subject is, it is undeniably a great work of art, a fine painting, but it was long held as just one of many great Renaissance paintings in the Louvre's massive collection. A turning point came in the early 20th century. As I've covered in a previous episode, the Mona Lisa was stolen in 1911. Vincenzo Perugia basically just walked in through a side door of the museum. He took the painting off the wall, wrapped his coat around it, and walked out. The painting sat in his apartment for two years before he was caught trying to sell it to an Italian art gallery. Apparently, Perugia was under the mistaken impression that the Mona Lisa had been taken from Italy by Napoleon, because for a while, uh, Napoleon had the, Mo- the Mona Lisa hanging up in one of his palaces. He wanted it sort of repatriated back to Italy, and in in that process, he got caught trying to sell it because the gallery owner did not want to be buying um, stolen artwork, and so he He basically contacted the authorities. But during the two years where the work was missing, it captured headlines. The story became more sensational as famous figures like Pablo Picasso and the poet Apollinaire became suspects. After its return to the Louvre, the crowds became bigger and bigger. Today, the Mona Lisa sits in a climate-controlled box behind bulletproof glass, thanks to vandals who threw acid and then a rock at the work. Seeing it today means wading through a sea of people with cell phones raised, taking selfies in front of the most famous Renaissance masterpiece. But one final bit of intrigue lingering in the mythology surrounding the Mona Lisa is that some say all of those people visiting the museum today are crowding around and taking selfies in front of a forgery. It can be hard to believe that some massive world events like the theft of the Mona Lisa could be the result of some ordinary person just walking in and grabbing the painting off the wall. Conspiracy theories spring up to help give people a sense of order as big events appear to fit into a larger plan. On some level, it's comforting to think some greater villain or group of villains orchestrated a masterful heist. In 1932, the reporter Carl Decker found a more compelling villain for the piece. He wrote of a con man named Eduardo de Valfierno, who claimed to have been the brains behind the theft of the Mona Lisa. He said he had Perugia steal the work so he could sell half a dozen forgeries to gullible and unscrupulous collectors. Along similar lines, during World War II, There are spotty records with regard to the Mona Lisa's whereabouts during the time that many significant works were crated up from museums to protect them from Nazi plundering. There are two documents indicating that the Mona Lisa was among 12,000 works salvaged by the Monuments Men from a salt mine in Austria. The Louvre has said little about the painting's journey during World War II, but there are some indications that it may have been another version of Mona Lisa used to send the Nazis on a wild goose chase while the original was safely crated up somewhere else in France. Some see clever misdirection that helped preserve the most famous painting in the world, while others see another conspiracy of forgeries perhaps floating around to conceal the fact that the most famous painting in the world has been lost or stolen. The mysterious elements leave us all to see and believe what we want, making the experience of the piece unique to each individual. As with so many works of art, the greatness lies in the viewer's imagination. Now that you've heard a little bit of the case for every one of our final four in this year's Arts Madness Tournament, please take time to weigh in and tell me which one is your favorite. Go to whoartedpodcast.com vote to vote for your favorites, and be sure to tune in next week to figure out which two are going to our finals